over the long term, being consistent about your strategy and not consistently sort of changing it with, you know, a new board that has a certain agenda or, you know, you know, sort of forcing turnover at the CIO level. Um, and then you get somebody that, that else that comes in and doesn't quite see things, you know, and they start to try and implement. And, and probably that is in response to some sort of level of underperformance that is probably going to change in the near future. So, um, so that's been a, just a tremendous asset for us. So. Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their product before you make investment decisions. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup-Larsen. For me, the best part of my podcasting journey has been the opportunity to speak to a huge range of extraordinary investors from all around the world. In this series, I have invited one of them, namely Alan Dunn, to host a series of in-depth conversations on the topic of what it takes to be a world-class allocator. In today's world, portfolio construction is fast moving to the top of the agenda of many investors as they try to analyze and understand the riskiness of their portfolios. And with ever-increasing uncertainty around the globe, being well-diversified across many different strategies and themes in your portfolio can mean the difference between ruin and survival when the next crisis emerge. The aim of these conversations is to try and understand the experiences that have influenced these highly specialized allocators and the processes they follow to harness the best returns for their clients so that we can all become better informed investors. And with that, Please welcome Alan Dunn. Thanks very much for that introduction, Niels. Today I'm joined by Catherine Mulner and Andy Speller. Catherine is Chief Investment Officer of Fairfax County Police Officers Retirement System, and Andy is CIO of Fairfax County Employees Retirement System. Both have expensive experience in the markets as allocators. Andy and Catherine, great to have you today. How are you both doing? Good morning, Alan. How are you? Great, thank you. Nice to be here. Great, thanks a lot. It's a quite a unique system you have uh, at Fairfax County in terms of having um, multiple CIOs um, running portfolios side by side. Maybe to set the scene for the conversation today, Catherine, could you give us an overview of how that operates, and maybe tell us a little bit about the portfolios you manage, and um, you know, in terms of the size of the portfolios, investment objectives, any target returns, and any constraints, etc. Of course. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, so Andy and I um, and our colleagues represent three different retirement systems at Fairfax County. All three are defined benefit public pension plans. Collectively, the assets total roughly around $9 billion. Um, the employees plan is the largest, and Andy manages that one, and it's um, over five. Uh, and I manage the police officer system, which is about $2 billion. Um, all three systems are um, underfunded. Um, like many of our peers, we're in good company, um, but, but not terribly underfunded. 
underfunded. And in fact, our funded status has improved greatly uh, in the last year, probably like a lot of our like a lot of our uh, allocator friends as well in the the public pension space. So, for example, my funded status is about 91%, and it actually went up 10 points just in the most recent fiscal year as we had very um, particularly strong performance. Um, all three systems have an identical um, actual assumed rate of return of 6.75. And that used to be higher. It was about seven and a half probably when I joined, which was about nine years ago. We lowered it to seven and a quarter, maybe four or five years ago. And then just last year, uh, lowered it again to 6.75%. Great. And one of the things that often comes up, you know, a lot of our, you know, our, listeners, myself included, you know, we often hear about the funding status of a, of a public pension plan. And it's always a curiosity as to, you know, does that under level of underfunding or, or influence the investment strategy to any degree? Or are they very much uh, separate? Um, well, I would say um, for a public fund, we do not have to mark our liabilities to market like a corporate uh, structure does. Yeah. And so um, I think that just gives us much more freedom uh, to to not pay attention to that because okay. obviously if you're a corporate plan, you're tied to certain interest rate levels and um, and those fluctuations uh, can in- increase or decrease you know the value of your liabilities and therefore impact your sort of your financial statement, which is not something that we have to worry about. So so I think it's just. Um, I much prefer this because it, it allows you to sort of uh, chase your your primary objective, which is to, to achieve your assumed rate of return, as opposed to trying to manage the, the volatility on your balance sheet. So, um, Great. And we, we well, sit it, in a I very mean, fortunate spot, to some sort of interrupt you, by the way, because Fairfax County yeah. being one of the um, – Actually, wealthiest counties in the United States, um, the um, the county government has made a commitment to get all three systems back to fully funded status. And and so, in fact, um, along with their normal um, contributions each year, they're they've actually committed to over contributing each year to get all three systems back to fully funded status. Okay, great. Um, in terms of you know the the overall kind of portfolio construction process and, and 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 asset allocation, maybe Andy, if you could give us a sense on you know how do you think about asset allocation, risk buckets, um, what's the philosophy around that? Um, sure. So um, actually, for quite some time now, we started with the employee system, and then Catherine's system has developed that over time as well. Um, we are risk allocators as opposed to capital allocators. So um, just to sort of give you a, a basic sort of framework for that, uh, most people will allocate their, a lot of people will allocate their portfolio, say 60, 40 stocks and bonds. But when you do the math on that in terms of the risk allocation and the risk contribution from those two, two factors, um, it's way out of whack. It's not 60, 40. It's something more like 85, 15. And so just doing the math, you know, if you have 60% of your portfolio in, a, a, say, the S&P 500 with a 15% annualized level of volatility, uh, that's, you know, essentially contributing 9% of the volatility to the overall mix. Yeah. Right. Uh, and if you're looking for bonds to offset that uh, because of the lack of correlation, uh, your bond portfolio, which is 40% of your portfolio, has, you know, if you're just doing sort of a Lehman Ag or, uh, I'm sorry, Barclays Ag or, you know, some sort of treasury benchmark or intermediate benchmark, you're talking about 5% volatility. So now, you, you know, the bonds are only contributing 2% to your to your overall risk profile. And so even if you get that correlation um, assumption correct, the, the stocks are you know three times more volatile than the bonds, 
<clears throat> and you're not really offsetting each other and really capitalizing on the diversification benefit. So what we would actually look at that and say, well, okay, what I want to do is actually be 50% stocks and 50% bonds in terms of my risk allocation. But that means either uh, holding higher volatility bonds, so 30-year bonds instead of you know an intermediate portfolio, or taking a more diversified intermediate portfolio and levering it up three times. Now your risk in your bond portfolio is comparable to the equities. You've actually increased the risk premium that you would actually um, collect from those bonds as well. So, And you haven't actually, when you come down to the realized volatility, taken any more risk on a realized basis than you did when you were 60-40. Um, and so and, and the, the, you're getting the full benefit of the lack of correlation from stocks and bonds. So so that's the concept that we we start with. And then you can, you know, and that's true for any kind of asset. So if you're just looking at two stocks, it's exactly the same concept. Um, it's the risk contribution that you really want to look at and manage, um, not just have it be a fallout of where you put your money. So you want to start at that point, not end with it. And uh, it, it that's very much in the same kind of philosophy as risk parity and kind of you know all the all all weather investing approach. Are, have you taken it to the same extent of trying to be, um, you know, uh, balanced across the different risk factors, say as equity risk and duration risk? Is that part of the philosophy too? Yep. So there's about ten buckets that we uh, roll everything up into. Okay. So equities, credit, uh, real assets, um, inflation bonds, nominal bonds. Uh, foreign exchange, um, and then obviously alpha is a sort of a, is, is a, a factor as well. Okay. Um, and so each uh, uh, line item in our portfolio, we'll assess what risks sit inside of that, break them out, and then we'll roll them up to see what that cumulative risk looks like. Um, and we don't go for full risk parity, um, but we're managing our risks to um, just be better diversified than a typical plan will. And so that just means a, a, a you know, a little bit less equities, um, more, you know, commodities and real assets, and certainly more inflation bonds, a nominal bond exposure. Um, and um, it gives us a little bit more of a cushion on the downside. So the concept is if, you know, equities are charging off and, you know, our peers are up 25%, we might be up 20. But when they're down 10, we'll be down five. And, and the comp, the negative compounding of that is is tough. So, like obviously, if you have a dollar, you lose fifty cents. Now you have to gain a hundred percent back in order to get back to whole. What it means is we we give up a little on the upside, but we don't have to make as much back on the downside coming back. And so, what that allows us to do is compound at just a slightly higher rate than our peers. And uh, and that's kind of what's happened over time in terms of the performance of the funds. So. I I think just to even add, take that even further, and yep. I think um, Andy can also speak to this as well, but um, all three of our systems have um, portfolio level leverage. So not only leverage at the manager level, which of course is very typical for most, uh, most funds or depend on the strategy, but we also have portfolio level leverage. And so this idea of being so very diversified has allowed us to actually take a little more risk, um, if you will, and um, you know has hopefully or over time has helped us to, to, to achieve the actual same actual or same rate of return yeah um and and so uh 
you know, we, we kind of think of, you know, that um, really think of, of our portfolio as kind of one large portable alpha construct, if you will, right? Yeah. So we have a number of exposures that we get passively through futures, um, yeah. all three of our systems. Um, we monitor the collateral, obviously, that, that uh, supports the notional value of those exposures and monitor the volatility of those exposures, you know, with each other. Um, but then again, that allows us to be active in areas that we think are less efficient. So we are, you know, that allows us to be active in hedge funds. And, and other types of inefficient strategies. Yeah. Most of the leverage, um, the leverage comes from the use of futures. So it's not financial leverage, it's just economic leverage to uh, the markets. Um, and so like Catherine mentioned, less efficient markets like the S&P or treasuries or um, to some degree commodities and FX and gold is also in our portfolio. That's where we're using uh, the leverage uh, through futures to do that. And it's a diversified mix, and we manage that mix uh, as a separate portfolio to make sure that we understand the risk profile of that as well. And then we can we can allocate the capital that we um, free up by doing that um, uh, elsewhere. And we'll also go into higher vol strategies as well. So, um, you know, you can put two thirds of the money in a 15 vol strategy um, that you would if you were you know doing the same strategy at 10 vol. Right. Um, and so um, so we do a lot of that as well. And it just makes us take every single dollar and every single dollar in our portfolio is earning above our assumed rate of return, which is not the case. If let's say you hold, you know, if you have 40 percent of your portfolio in, you know, bonds at the levels that they've been in, um, you know, it makes it really tough for you to, to achieve your return objectives. So. Great. Well, it, maybe I, if I might just jump in with a point, because I think what you're talking about is very interesting. Um, wh- one of the things that you, that I find talking to a lot of kind of um, what you might call real money investors or even private investors is that people automatically think in the size of their portfolio being 100% market exposure. But obviously what you're talking about is that doesn't have to be the case that often people think about in terms of increasing or decreasing the risk of their portfolio. And they do that by increasing the equities in the portfolio. But actually what you're saying is you can be very diversified and then choose how much risk to have by by increasing or decreasing the leverage in the portfolio, um, which is probably a more means you can have a more balanced portfolio and then decide precisely how much risk you want to have at any point in time. And you can increase the risk or the leverage rather, sorry, let me say you can increase the the leverage, but if you're doing it actually by adding negatively correlated assets, you're actually decreasing your risk. So you can take more exposure, higher leverage and actually end up with lower ultimate portfolio um, volatility. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, from that perspective, I guess that kind of spins off a whole load of different uh, topics that we can address as we go through the next hour from kind of education challenges, I'm sure, with with boards about the use of leverage and and communication challenges. Uh, And obviously, then you've got challenges around the consistency of correlation. But maybe that's one to jump into now. Obviously, you touch about, you know, using leverage is great if if, if it's in the right hands. You know, it's always a case of kind of don't do this at home if, if you don't know. Well, if you're going to lever up the equity risk, but but your philosophy is obviously getting more diversified in an environment that we've moved into this year, where we're seeing, you know, concurrent declines in in bonds and equities. Obviously, you have to be 
um, you know, that, that highlights the risk of being over levered, say, in bonds. How has like the market environment we're seeing this year with more inflation, um, as I say, current weakness in bonds and equities at the same time, and, um, you know, a, a resurgence in things like commodity markets? Is that something that you're tactically responding to or something that you'd always kind of had your portfolio prepared for? Um, really both. Um, so we've always um, carried a, a fair amount of inflation sensitive assets. So we have a fair amount of tips in the portfolio. We have a fair amount of commodity exposure. And so really it's, it's been over the last, you know, 2021, uh, January was a particularly big um, shift in interest rates. And the whole idea of this risk parity concept is that you're collecting the average risk premium of offsetting risks, right? So, and in January of 2021, there was a big uh, shift in interest rates. We lost a lot of money in our bond portfolios um, in terms of uh, the futures contracts that we have, as well as the, you know, the, the fully funded accounts that we manage. But our real asset portfolios offset that and then some. And so the commodities uh, that we were holding outperformed, uh, you know, uh, made up more than made up for the losses we had endured in our bond portfolio. And our, our real asset portfolios that are funded um, have, have performed fantastic. So on a relative basis, actually, we've survived the last year and a half uh, quite well. Uh, and that's really been flowing through into the sort of the quarterly peer performance reviews that we've been doing. Um, and we can also watch the other you know, strategy or the other fund that we have in, in-house that's managed a little differently. And we can sort of can see that on a, on a day, you know, day in, day out, week in, week out uh, basis. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we haven't really had to do a whole lot. We've had that exposure in place. On the margin, we've increased it. Yeah. Um, and when, when I say on the margin, just, a, you know, uh, a tactical shift here or there of maybe two or two and a half percent of the portfolio. Yes. Um, uh, and um, uh, and so and that's been incremental, obviously. Um, but, you know, we ha- because we've been positioned this way, um, you know, we've we really haven't to have haven't had to make a lot of changes in the, in the, the overall structure. Interesting. And and with something like fixed income, you know, obviously a lot of people saying, you know, you don't want to be invested in fixed income anymore. You know, well, this is probably uh, maybe going back a year when yields were, were, were ultra low. Uh, obviously, with more of a risk parity approach, you, you don't tend to take that kind of, you know, tactical view. You're kind of saying, well, we want to be allocated to that risk bucket through the cycle at all times. So is that the, that's the approach that you would continue to maintain that kind of exposure for that, for just to, to capture that unique risk premium? Yeah, we've done a couple of different things on the margin. I mean, one, we certainly have uh, inflation bond protection, and that worked really well last year. It's been a little more rocky this year, um, but last year was a great year for inflation uh, protected securities. Um, and, and then on the nominal bond side, um, I have made some adjustments. So we do have large, you know, pretty sizable futures position across uh, the 10-year uh, mark globally. Um, and what we've been able to do is avoid, you know, over the last couple of years, five or six years, we've been uh, using interest rate swaps as to augment the futures markets to broaden the number of markets that we can invest in. So it opened up something like South Korea, um, Singapore, New Zealand, um, Norway, things like that, where those markets have mm-hmm. been, had more you know, higher nominal interest rate structures than say a Japan or a Germany or a UK, right? So we were able to swap out of those markets as they went negative and um, maintain, you know, a reasonably high level of, of nominal interest rates as, you know, and so, and that's that's helped at the margin. I mean, so. 
I think also maybe just I think it would be worthwhile to talk about some of the strategies that um, I won't say the direct fixed income replacements, but I will say that they throw off a lot of cash. Um, and so there are certain strategies that we've uh, Andy's done more than I have, but certain strategies in the real asset space, and and we even have a some private equity managers where we are own a portion of the GP, and and so then we're getting you know a portion of the carry and the management fees every single quarter. So we have been increasingly looking for things that would be again not necessarily replacements for fixed income, but but also cash generated in their own right. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because if you think about the role that maybe fixed income historically played in portfolios, <clears throat> one was, as you say, cash and income generation. And the second thing was obviously it, it was an asset that would do well in terms of stress. Um, now, obviously, people have become more worried about that because we've seen, you know, when you get an interest rate shock or an inflation shock, it won't do as well. But I know from looking at your portfolios and, you know, the, the information is, is, is all public and up on the website. So you can see that you both allocate uh, quite, quite a bit to um, absolute return strategies and global macro and, and all of that. And uh, one of the themes that, that we've been picking up uh, on this podcast, talking to other investors, has been, you know, the growth of uh, risk mitigation strategies and this idea of using absolute return and trend following and, and these types of strategies in that bucket. Um, maybe, Catherine, I, I mean, is that how you think about absolute return or is it specific types of absolute return strategies would be viewed as kind of crisis risk offset type strategies or, or what's your philosophy around that? Well, in general, we, we like absolute return and we like that all the time. So it's not like we're more or less favorable on it at any given time. We always like it. Um, and so for us, you know, that the hedge fund bucket is really predominantly made up of global macro CTA as well as relative value, which would include multi-strategy relative value. And so we really don't have any meaningful exposure to event-driven or to equity long short because we do think over time these strategies tend to have a decent amount of beta on in general. Unless it's really like a market neutral, you know, equity manager, but otherwise just the typical equity manager, equity long short manager over time is, is about net, net 40 to 60 percent long on average. So we tend to under, we don't really have a lot of meaningful exposure there. Or if we're going to have it, I do happen to have one long short manager, equity manager, but they reside in my long only equity bucket, and it has to be a pretty high value proposition for that fee differential, as you as you would imagine. Yeah. So that really leads us with macro CTA and and relative value. And as Andy mentioned earlier, we do tend to favor higher vol management. Managers, higher okay. vol strategies because that means we can just allocate less money to them yep. um, and so between those two it means that we tend to be more in macro CTA it's interesting you say that is that is that a difficult concept to get across to people like most people you know a lot of managers I'm sure come in knocking on the door saying oh, we've got low vol and we can deliver this return at low vol when actually yeah, you know, that's, not, from, that's not appealing whatsoever. And I people no, I try mean, and but, sell me on a high sharp ratio. And I'm like, that's great, but I can't pay benefits with a high sharp ratio. You know, exactly. you may have like a two sharp, but your vol is four and, and you know, so or three. And so, you know, I, I tell you that it I, it has been a challenge in the past. And it, it's not only in the hedge fund space. It even goes back to, to risk parity managers. Andy and I both happen to have a risk parity manager. And in both for both of us, we've elected to be in their 25% volatility share class. And trying to make trustees understand that, you know, if we're trying to target 10 vol for this strategy, we can invest in a 25 vol manager and instead of making it 10%, I only to make it a 4% allocation and I'm getting the exact same risk exposure as if I had invested the full 10%. So 
it is kind of having to, from time to time, remind them of that message. But it, it goes back to what we kind of keep saying, this common theme, which is that we're trying to be absolutely as efficient as we can with every single exposure that we hold. If we can get it passively, if we can get it using futures, if we can get it by being a higher vol share class, which frees up capital to go somewhere else trying to be absolutely as efficient as we can in every single thing that we do. And maybe it means negotiating lower fees with managers if we can get it, being willing to lock up our money in a, in a longer lock share class to get lower fees. Just anything we can do to be as efficient and, and you know, as, as we can and, and as, 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 you know, cheaply as, as we can, of course, as well. And you, obviously you talked about risk buckets at the outset. Um, when you're looking at something like a, a CTA or a trend follower, I mean, when you look at that, what what are you then transferring that into in terms of a risk bucket? Um, so again, that's part of our hedge fund allocation, and again, it's weighted or it, you know, it's sized based on its expected volatility. And most of the CTAs, which are systematic, obviously, most of them um, obviously have a tend to have like a, a volatility expectation. So that makes it um, that makes it pretty easy. We, we think of. I will tell you that I think of CTA and trend following somewhat as a long vol strategy, but it's not a perfectly long vol strategy, right? So just if you think about, if you really think very big picture about a portfolio, and I don't know that most allocators think of it this way, but if you think about most of the things that we all hold, we would be short vol. Most of them equities, credit, most of these things do very well when volatility is, is lower falling, right? And, and thus, you know, growth is doing very well. And so the the opposite of that would be long vol exposures. Well, long vol, of course, is like buying protection, which tends to be expensive. And so people don't really want to do that over time because there's a bleed and a time decay if you're just buying options. So trend following um, is is somewhat of a great, it doesn't exactly solve the problem, but it, it is, it's a great diversifier. I've never described it as a hedge to equities. I don't think it is a hedge to equities. If you're in a very strong equity trend, the trend follows will be in the same trends as your equity managers, but they'll have it be doing the same, having the same exposure with leverage. So, um, but, so it's not a, it's not a hedge, but it is, I think, you know, indeed a, a great diversifier. So that's how we think of it. We don't think of it as a perfect hedge. It's a nice diversifier. Um, so we like trend following. We like other types of, of, of macro strategies, global macro strategies, and we very much like relative value as well. And 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 with relative value, you know, you tend to have a lot of um, a lot of leverage there. Um, we tend to be a big fan of kind of the multi-manager platforms, where you really do have risk spread out across you know a number of different different PLs different trading teams and each of them is kind of individually very tightly risk managed and then the, the the fund applies some leverage at the top to get you know an attractive return and so I'll mention just because I had mentioned a few minutes ago how we try to get as every exposure that we hold as cheaply and efficiently as we can and on the other hand there are certain hedge funds that we're willing to um, pay um, you know, whatever we need to pay, um, managers who have partial expense pass-throughs or even full expense pass-throughs, and we're willing to do it because we think that those um, structures have a tremendous amount of superiority when it comes to sourcing talent and, and retaining talent. So, Interesting. And obviously, you touch on, you know, these allocations in the absolute return bucket uh, vary across macro relative value. CTAs, etc. If you're looking at the whole gamut of these strategies, I mean, do you have a certain bucket for CTAs and a certain bucket for discretionary macro and a certain bucket for a quant macro? Or are you comparing a CTA versus a discretionary macro manager at any time? 
We have all of the above. So we have discretionary macro, we have trend following, we have short-term systematic, we could have fundamental, quantitative fundamental. So, you know, quant managers who are not only looking at price and derivatives of price like trend followers, they'd be looking at fundamental and economic indicators as well. We have all of that and we like all of that. And we, we you know, we like to have a, a, a nice mix of that. But at the end of the day, all of that's macro and all of that. We hope that all of it's diversifying to everything else that we own, right? So in a, in a perfect world, they're also diversifying to each other. But yes. more importantly, they're diversifying to kind of everything that we own that would be like a rise in growth exposure, so equities and credit and things of that nature. Um, and again, each of them ultimately gets size in our portfolios based on their expected risk. So the higher vol we can get with the manager, the less we have to give them, as we've talked about. Um, yeah. yeah, and we look at classify alpha in two different ways. Uh, one is hedge fund alpha. Um, which all of that rolls up into all of those strategies generally over time will have zero correlation to all of the other assets that we own. And so we treat that as a separate risk exposure. And then um, the other bucket is is manager alpha, which is, say, a traditional manager that has a tracking error to a benchmark. Um, and it's not funded in the way that the hedge fund alpha is, right? So the hedge fund alpha consumes capital. Um, the manager alpha is somewhat ephemeral. You can't touch and feel it, right? It, uh, it's just the tracking error and the ability of that manager to outperform um, uh, its you know, specific or relative benchmarks. So, um, so we roll those up and I've done a lot of work on sort of how those things play off. And, and generally they tend to be a little bit pro-growth um, but they'll also pay off in different different time frames as well. So we've we've taken that out and we've allocated it sort of um, you know how we think it'll play out in the portfolio's um, excess returns over time uh, across the cycle. So um, so we've broken that out as separate buckets, but they're not sort of they're a little bit more spread out in terms of the risk profile than say equities or nominal bonds or commodities or something like that. So. And and for strategies in absolute return, obviously you can you can target the volatility very clearly. You know, managers themselves will have a vol target and you can measure performance over time. Thinking about expected returns, you know, obviously you can look at past performance, but you know, do you think in terms of a certain kind of baseline expectation for a certain strategy, like do you expect trend following to have a certain sharp ratio or something like that? Or how do you think in terms of uh, return expectations in the absolute return space? Um, well, overall, we just assume a, a 0.7 sharp ratio for the overall hedge fund bucket. Um, uh, we have tinkered with uh, various sharp ratios for uh, different types of strategies. Um, and trend following is actually one like that. So over time, trend following has just become more and more commoditized and is much more like a beta than it used to be uh, you know, considered an alpha a long time ago. And so the pricing on that has dropped to sort of reflect that. Um, and we've been able to take advantage of that. So in general, we would you know, give you know, a trend follower perhaps a lower expected return uh, over time than say you know, a relative value strategy that might have a higher sharp ratio. But its diversification benefits are, are you know, fantastic. So it improves your overall sharp ratio. So historically, we've just looked at it as what's our expectation for this bucket, um, uh, and we haven't gotten too far down into sort of you know expected sharp ratios and returns for certain types of strategies. Um, uh, and it, it's fascinating to watch. I mean, the offsetting risks in these strategies. I mean, I, I think the average weighted vol on my hedge fund bucket is about twelve and a half percent. And the realized fall is about two and a half percent. So there's a, just a tremendous amount of diversification built into these uh, these structures. So yeah, um, 
And um, one thing I noticed with your portfolios is that you allocate uh, to a distinct global multi-asset segment alongside absolute return. So how do you, you know, what's the difference between multi-asset and and absolute return? A lot of absolute return managers will trade multi-asset, I guess. How do you think about the difference? So it's long only. Um, Sorry, risk parity bucket. Okay. Risk parity managers. Yep. So, so we we manage the the overall system within the risk construct, uh, risk contribution construct, um, and part of that, and and so the the risk parity managers do a couple of things for us. One, um, they allow us to incorporate leverage into their, you know, they they all incorporate leverage, and so that's how we can lever up the portfolio to some degree. Um, and they're across all the same asset classes that we would, you know, look for to invest in. Uh, but we also then are always in close contact with those folks to just make sure that we understand all the latest and greatest sort of thinking in terms of portfolio construction, how they're thinking about, um, particularly over the last couple of years, how they're thinking about, um, you know, replacing the bond exposure that they have and, and what they're doing to do that. Um, and so um, we look at them as, as sort of, you know, strategic partners to, to help us, you know, uh, sort of make sure that we, we're staying on top of the latest and greatest in terms of thinking in the space. So um, so that's, uh, yeah, we both have portfolios that are sort of in that 15 to 20% range uh, that are uh, risk parity managers that, that help us on really those two fronts. I mean, we could do it ourselves if we wanted to, but it's just nice to have those um those conversations with those folks on a on a regular basis, and then it's a, it's a relatively easy way to get the the leverage in the portfolio. So good stuff, and it strikes me as you say you you're getting your exposures via multi asset. You you also have dedicated exposures to you know equity and fixed income managers, and then you're allocating to absolute return, and those managers are also then obviously getting um you know exposure across equities bonds, commodities, and currencies, do you then try and aggregate everything and monitor all of the exposures you're getting from the underlying managers? And is that one thing you do? And do you ever then try and offset any of the risk? Or do you just, uh, you know, look at them all as a series of distinct kind of uh, return series? Uh, the latter, yeah. So I'd love to tell you we could get into all the different, you yes. know, and roll up the portfolios. The, the problem you get into is that you know, one incorporating private assets, which we do, um, is just a little gets a little tricky. And then uh, hedge fund managers, you know, you're going to get the information. If you're going to get the information, you're going to get it with a lag. Um, and um, it's just it's sort of you know it's there. You can try and do it, but you're never going to be precise. And uh, so there's always going to be art in it. And um, we just think that focusing on sort of the, the big asset class level risks is, um, you know, ultimately that's what that's what matters, right? So. Um, and let me just even add on to that about because you, you mentioned Alan about you know possible do we ever do anything at the portfolio level to hedge and the answer is um, probably no but I'd like to just kind of maybe in, um, elaborate on that a little bit so in. Starting around 2017, and probably for about a good two years, we were looking at potentially doing some type of portfolio-level hedging strategy. In fact, it probably even started earlier than 2017. It might have even been 16, about possibly adding some type of an overlay, portfolio hedging overlay. And that could have been, you know, puts, put spread, put spread collars. We looked at a number of different um 
option structures, you know, obviously the cost, you know, involved in those, which obviously vary depending if it was a put, a put spread or a put spread collar, how much of the portfolio we would want to hedge, you know, how much equity sensitivity we thought that the portfolios had, which of course varies greatly depending on kind of what timeframe you're looking at. Um, And then even like what time of the year we would want to hedge, because for us, we have a June 30th fiscal year end, all three of our systems. And so that's really the number that we have to care about is the June 30th number. And so we spoke to banks, we spoke to asset managers, and we kind of went through this process kind of on and off for over two years. And, and ultimately, and, 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 and finally, in about 2019, um, we still hadn't decided to do it. And what, would it be on all the time? Would it, would it be systematic? Would it be much more opportunistic? And, and finally, we just came to the conclusion that we were just going to take down some of our beta instead. And so instead of just hedging out the risk at the portfolio level, we elected instead in the second half of 2019 to take down some of our beta. And we did that Andy and I both did that, both some of our equity exposure and some of our high yield exposure. And we parked that money, parked that money kind of temporarily, uh, some of it into, into uh, treasuries with the idea that, that that would be. And we started making commitments to distress funds. This actually predated COVID by about half a year. And we started making um, commitments to distress funds. And then that money in treasuries would be what we would use for capital calls for distress mandates because we really felt like the markets were getting very um, toppy. Um, and we just hadn't really decided on a portfolio level hedging structure. And so we elected to take down beta, to park it to Berlin Treasuries, commit to a couple of different distress mandates, and then use that money to call capital. And then, you know, and then COVID hit obviously in March of 2020. And um, I wouldn't tell you that we were wonderfully positioned, but but we were able to be somewhat tactical. I mean, that's kind of interesting to talk about that in its own right. We were able to be a little bit tactical during COVID, and we really leaned into areas that had sold off a lot. So we um, you know, added back money to emerging markets debt and then even added more in even like outweighed or oversized emerging markets debt. We put money into structured credit when it had sold off a lot. We put gold into the portfolio. So we we really tried to kind of lean into to areas that had sold off a lot and it did really well. That that exposure has done very well since then. Very good. Yeah, one of the things that that you know it strikes me about running portfolios, you know, on a, on a kind of risk parity basis or, or an all weather basis, is you know you you know you're relying on the fact that different strategies and assets perform well at different times, which makes sense because there tends to be good economic reasons for that. Uh, you know, in an economic downturn, your equities might do badly, but you'll make money on on bonds. Or in in an inflation scenario, you know, bonds might do badly, but as you say, you're doing well on on the commodity side. What's the kind of scenario that keeps you awake at night or that you worry about? You know, is it the kind of the liquidation sell-off? Is there a liquidation sell-off type scenario where everything is getting hit? Or how do you manage for for this kind of correlation risk within the portfolio? Um, yeah, I, I guess the, the closest thing that I've seen uh, was with 2008 with rising real rates. Um, so obviously you had a tremendous drop-off in, in productivity, right? But inflation just fell through the floor as well. And so your your real rate was actually rising. Um, and that's a killer for pretty much every asset. And only cash and nominal bonds are really going to help you. And that's basically what we saw in 2008. So, so that's kind of the killer scenario. Um, even 2018, I think, was a year where, where, where nothing worked. You know, mm-hmm. oh, I think most hedge, CTAs were negative. All hedge fund strategies, I think, were down. And, and bonds and equi- equities, I think, were down. Um, that, that type of scenario as well, which, again, was a rising rate scenario. Uh, but, uh, you know, the question's always been, you know, so what happens when, you know, rates start to rise? And um, and that's been a 
you know, I've been, so I actually took three years to, to go out and talk to other folks about risk parity strategies and, and just, that was always constantly the pushback. And that was a, that was 10 years ago, <laughs> right? So what happens when rates rise? Um, and so, and bonds did really well between then and like a year or so ago. So you just never know when that's going to happen, but rates don't typically levitate. They go up and down for reasons. And mm. so the question was always what, you know, why are rates rising, especially nominal rates and, uh, and, and, and real rates. Um, but, you know, we've seen over the last year or so that, um, you, know, you know, rates being slowly pushed up because of inflation expectations and realized inflation um, has, again, in our portfolios has been nicely offset by that inflation protection that we have in the portfolio. So, you know, if it's just a stock and bond portfolio, that scenario is, is disastrous, right? But um, that's why you want to have true diversification. You want to have more assets in, in your portfolio and you want to have them at risk contributions that make a difference. And that's really what we've seen over the last year. Um, and, and certainly like this this month, I mean, some of the moves in the commodity market's just been you know pretty crazy and bonds have been falling the whole time. So, but it's just having that diversification. You know, and commodities were a painful carry for a long time. I'm not going to lie to you about absolutely. that. Absolutely. No, no, absolutely. Even, even for CJs, there were particularly uh, tough uh, for a number of years yeah yeah so but we've also you know made a pretty big move into private um yeah yeah and i and i know you have also moved into digital assets i think it's well known that you've been proponents of the digital space um you know for some people obviously that's maybe too far on the, on the risk spectrum you know investing in in cryptocurrencies etc what's been your thought process when you've started to look at the cryptocurrency space and, and the broader digital asset space that you felt there was a, a good case for including it in, in, in a portfolio? I can start and Andy can certainly add on. So so for us, um, we started on this journey about four years ago um, and that's when we made our, our first commitment and then we both of our systems have now made six commitments. Five of the six have been in venture capital and that's how we started. And I specifically mentioned that because I think for um, institutions, I think that venture capital can sometimes be um, an easier way to kind of go about it because from venture capital, your boards or whoever your constituents are, you know, that people already understand that that's going to be illiquid. It might be volatile. It's very speculative, right? So people already expect that from venture capital kind of by its very nature very growth, you know, high growth, hopefully. Um, and so that's how we started and we sized it um, based on all of those factors, based on everything I just mentioned. We expect it to be very volatile. We sized it based on that. Um, and so and inside of all these five venture capital funds and all five cases, they'll predominantly hold you know, private equity, as you would imagine that they would. Um, but they will also have early stage tokens and then later stage tokens as well. And so there is a certain por portion of the fund that actually is liquid. The later stage tokens would be liquid. You could actually trade them. They do trade them. But nevertheless, they benefit, if you want to think of it that way, from sitting inside of this structure that's valued only quarterly. So as an investor, as a as limited partner, we see that valuation once a quarter. We don't have to stomach the day-to-day -day volatility of that asset class, even though it's all long only. Then if you pivot, and, and, and by the way, let me just step back and say we did this because we see it as a huge area of growth. We have we are of the opinion that eventually, you know, every asset is going to be, you know, tokenized, right? And so you'll have, you know, fractional be able to buy fractional shares of, of everything and not just assets. So we can come back to that, NFTs and, and, and the growth there. But more recently, we also um, invested in a long, short crypto dedicated hedge fund. The It's completely crypto, everything. Multi-strategy, self-described multi-strategy hedge fund. They have some 
directional strategies, but then they have a number of relative value market neutral strategies that would not be very dissimilar to the types of strategies you see in fixed income relative value. And so they're doing true arbitrage strategies. They're doing basis trading, yield farming, trust arbitrage, cross-exchange arbitrage, things of that nature. And that to us, as soon as they started talking to us about that strategy, it made total sense. It's a very typical hedge fund strategy, so that resides within our hedge fund bucket. Now, it's size smaller than our other hedge funds because we think it's going to be even more volatile than even some of our very volatile CTAs. Um, but nevertheless, we, we, we liked what they were doing. It's like true typical arbitrage hedge fund strategies. We think that the fact that the area is, is as inefficient as it is lends itself very well to some of these active trading strategies. And kind of similarly, all of the volatility that is inherent in this space, um, these type of strategies do, do really well with volatility. So relative value, like volatility is like the single best thing that's good for that type of strategy, right? For that strategy. So, you know, instead of, th- instead of being kind of scared away by the volatility, we're hoping that this hedge fund can actually like harness that volatility, if you want to think of that way, and actually make money because of the the sheer volatility of the asset class. So we've been pretty excited. In that particular case, we were also able to get um, kind of a strategic investor for them. And so we've been willing to lock our money up for three years in exchange. We've got a multi-year revenue share with that manager. So we're pretty excited. And we think that, you know, see that as somewhat of like a free call option on the future adoption of digital assets by institutions more broadly. But so so it, it depends on, you know, if digital assets, like, are we talking long-only venture capital? Or are we talking long-only actively traded, which would have a lot of volatility? to it, by the way. Yeah. A hedge fund, which is still volatile, but not as volatile as just a long-only expression. Are we talking just buying a, a passive trust so, or just buying Bitcoin and Ethereum you know, tokens? But anyway, we've gone the venture capital route and, and the hedge fund route to date. Interesting. And obviously, you, you, as you talked, there's lots of unique opportunities. There's lots of inefficiency, which obviously lends itself well to active trading strategies. I guess you have to balance that, or you tell me, with you know, being a new asset class, is there, is there unique risks associated with that, say, with custody of assets or infrastructure, things like that? How, how do you get comfortable with those kinds of different risks that you might have encountered before? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's a I think it's a really important point. When we started looking at this space four years ago, not only were these managers new to us, you know, I mean, the, the, the strategy was new. I mean, we didn't know a lot about blockchain technology. We didn't know a lot about Bitcoin or digital assets, right? So the managers were new. The strategy was new, but to your point, a number of the service providers were also brand new. So it's like a whole new ecosystem, if you will, the digital asset space. And so it was having to get comfortable with the strategy, having to get comfortable with the new manager, and then having to get comfortable with service providers that we were not familiar with whatsoever. And people may or may not realize this, but when tokens, you know, first come out when they're when they're when they're still private before they before this truly liquidity most managers do have to self custody these assets there's not an option even to have them custodied by a third party or external custodian so you have to be able to get comfortable that a manager has the internal security um, you know, infrastructure, if you will, to be able to to internally custody these assets and, you know, come there's cold storage and hot storage. And, and then eventually a lot of these assets can be custodied by external custodians. But when we started with this process four years ago, you didn't have people like Fidelity Digital who were willing to custody the assets. So it wasn't BNY Mellon willing to custody the assets. And then, you know, more people now than there were then. And so there were all the, all of these were new organizations to us. And we even encountered a situation with one of our private equity, one of our venture capital managers, where, you know, we were able to get comfortable with why they would need to self-custody those assets for a certain period of time. And then we were able, you know, got comfortable with the fact that, you know, when, when it was appropriate that these 
assets could be, you know, moved externally for external custodian, which is great. But by the way, in that particular case, they owned that custodian. It was one of the portfolio companies from a prior fund. So here you have a manager who owns their own service provider. I mean, talk about potential red flags. It's just, you know, like right and left, right? So what I have kind of, I think the way I've described it to people is I would never tell people to suspend their judgment. I would just tell people to be open-minded in this space because it is so very new. It means that not only the managers to some degree, you know, new to all of us, but but that means the whole ecosystem or sort of all everybody surrounding them, you know, that the custodians are new, right? And and you know, and, and some of the auditors and and you know it's it's just it's new, right? So we all have to think be a little bit more open-minded than than maybe if we're looking at kind of like a I don't know, a typical hedge fund strategy. And Andy, maybe just taking that point, you know, when you look at the different types of strategies and the ways of accessing the space, how would, how do you map that to the to the risk bucket? So, say, where, where would a, a long exposure to Bitcoin feature from a, a risk budgeting perspective, and, and where does a kind of an exposure to a crypto hedge fund manager who's doing long short different strategies, how does that fit in as well? Yeah, so the the hedge fund is part of because we think it has a zero correlation to most asset classes, including say Bitcoin as a beta. That would just roll up with the hedge funds. On the other, the venture capital, um, we do have some exposure in those strategies to just straight Bitcoin exposure, um, but it's relatively small, uh, you know, relative to the, the the venture capital pieces of it. But even then. Uh, to us, this is all technology, so it would all roll up into equities. Um, it's just a whole new realm of thinking about owning ownership. Um, and you know, I don't know if you can sort of go down the route of you know talking about DAOs and things like that, um, uh, and the way that these uh, protocols are governed. Um, but to us, it's just equity risk. Uh, it's technology. I think there's a big mis- misnomer using the word currency to describe any of this. So, you know, Bitcoin is just a, ba- a database and um, uh, at the end of the day, and um, it's uh, the proof of concept um, for sort of the, the blockchain um, technology, but it's, it's slow, it's limited, um, and um, there's a lot that's going on behind it. So I think people get caught up with uh, one Bitcoin specifically, uh, the concept of it being a currency. When um, in reality, it's just a technology. And if you get past that, there's a tremendous amount of technological innovation that's taking place that is highly disruptive to lots of things that you own. And so, um, you know, we sort of come to the conclusion that if you weren't going to be long some of this exposure, you were you were already shorted. Uh, so that's, you know, that's how we've thought about it. Um, and that's how we treat it. And, you know, I, I think that, that um, you know, for a lot of sort of some of the reasons that Catherine expounded on and then this concept of, you know, Bitcoin being sort of the bright, shiny object that everybody sees that they can't really see what's going on behind it is going to keep a lot of institutional players away. I think that's changing pretty rapidly, but we've had a nice long runway to sort of take advantage of, you know, um, the space and it's, it's done well for us. Um, and like Catherine mentioned, we're shielded from some of the volatility because it's, you know, it's in these private equity vehicles um, that are, you know, valued quarterly. So, you know, the private equity components of it, which is a lot of the picks and shovels um, uh, sort of in the crypto space, um, has done well and offset some of that volatility as well. So we really haven't had to, to had to live with that volatility. Um, we we point, do, so. though, assign a, a, vol- a 
you know, potential volatility, Alan, though, because as, as you know, we, you know, have a, an expected return and expected risk assumption for every single exposure that we hold. And so for yes. the private equity venture capital funds that we're talking about, we've assigned a 25% volatility to them. I mean, it's, okay. yeah. you know, a little bit That's all over the place. Because some of the people we've been talking to, or sometimes you speak to people and say, well, private equity is marked less frequently, it's less volatile, you know, it's, it, well, it's almost yeah. like it's not as risky, but they don't maybe go quite as far as saying that. Well, but you're, and it, it, the implied volatility from your perspective is about 25%. It's it's a bit of a shot in the dark, but we we that's what we came up with and for the hedge fund we have um we've assigned it a 45% volatility, which is which is very low relative to if long only, but and it's not perfectly market neutral. There is still some beta, but they very dynamically manage the beta, and it's not beta to equity. It's like a classic hedge fund. It's really beta to crypto, so they're dynamically managing their beta to crypto. Um, but at the end of the day, they will still have some directional exposure. So we've assigned a forty-five percent volatility there. That's also a shot in the dark. Maybe just shifting gears a little bit um, into into more specifically the area of manager selection, because obviously you have that dual responsibility of asset allocation, and then you have to populate the, all of these um, uh, different strategies with the selection of different managers. You touched a little bit on on you know maybe having a bias in some instances for managers running at at a higher volatility. You know, manager selection. One of the themes that we've come up with here, on uh, talking to different allocators, is is generally it's 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 difficult. You know, there's lots of different biases that that come into play. What do you think is the uh, when when you're looking at say say the CTA space for for an example, or or the global macro space, as you're assessing the landscape, what what are the key things you're looking for to get get comfortable that this is the the the, the better manager for you to be allocating to versus the uh, other options in the space? So. I mean, I guess that there's kind of any number of things. We do extensive reference checks with any manager before we're going to allocate. That would that would always be the case. Um, you know, we're looking for um, how much uh, the the senior management team is invested in the fund itself. And so, generally speaking, although this is not always the case, but generally speaking, you know, we like um, funds that are that are privately owned. So, so that they're not, you know, they're they're not massive organizations and they're not public traded stocks, right? Because we want people to be really invested in what they're doing. We want them to be completely aligned with us, you know, if you will. Um, so, you know, we look at pedigree, we, we look at, you know, the level of investment by the, by the, the founders of the firm. You know, we, again, we don't like organizations that are hundred percent owned by somebody else in general. I'm not, there can be still, there can be exceptions, but just kind of generally speaking, um, you know, it's great if we're able to negotiate, you know, some something preferable, but that's not always the case. And, and, and so that's not, that's not a must have, but those are kind of generally some of the things that I guess, you know, I would, I would tell you, I mean, in the private equity space, when we're doing reference checks there, we're not only calling other limited partners like you would typically do, but we really are asking them for contacts at the portfolio companies themselves that, that they hold, that they own. And then we're really asking those founders of those technologies, why did you choose to partner with XYZ manager? Why did you want them and your on your cap table instead of their peers what is it about that organization versus their peers that you liked better how have they supported you already you know what kind of you know just anything and everything of that nature but really trying to go directly to the founders of these companies who are who choose which people they want to have as their own and as their investors and they've chosen to allow this venture capital fund to be one of their you know 
capital you know, partners, whatever, if you will. And so what was it, you know, why did they, why did they do that? Right. And, and, um, and so that's very telling in its own right. I would um, break it, break it down a little bit as well. So sort of traditional asset classes, we do sort of more peer to peer comparisons. So if you're looking in large cap value space, you can go to a database, you can download a whole bunch of, you know, large cap value managers and they all skin the cat a different, a different way, or maybe not. Um, and you can sort of come to some conclusions by looking at the historical returns and, and getting, you know, evaluating the firm. And we go to visit all the firms that we, we hire, um, which was a little problematic during COVID. But then, like, when you get to the alternative space, so hedge funds, uh, private equity, you know, again, we've concentrated in a couple of key spaces. And so it narrows down, you know, the list of places that we're looking for or types of managers we're looking for in hedge fund space. Um and then on the private equity side, we've uh, taken the approach of doing two things. So on one side, we're owning a couple of private equity firms that take stakes in private equity managers. So the dials of the world invest corp. Um, so we're in uh, three of those different funds where we actually are trying to be the GP, right? And they tend to be larger or mid-sized um, private equity firms that those, those funds are investing in. Um, they're typically not the fund that we're going to go out for. So we're not sort of interested in a big fund firm that has, you know, 14 or 15 different funds at this point and, you know, investing in sort of their next venture capital fund. We've become much more targeted and direct. So we've been looking in sort of the innovation space, which includes blockchain, artificial intelligence, life sciences, uh, cybersecurity, um, and some, you know, smart transportation type uh, uh, areas. And there, the, the funds tend to be, the firms are smaller, the fund sizes are smaller, um, they're much more focused and targeted in terms of, uh, you know, the sectors and the, the types of companies that they're investing in. Um, and uh, and so that's really sort of the, the direction that we've taken that. So it's a barbell of owning the big guys and then investing in the smaller ones. Um, and generally, we can get better economics. So, you know, we're, you know, we're about $9 billion in total. Um, but you know, we can walk into a smaller fund, say it's a, you know, $150 million fund with a, you know, $30 million or $40 million check. All of a sudden we're sort of the bigger player in the small pond. Um, and we're not going to get those kind of, uh, relationships and, um, you know, sort of fee discounts or anything like that. when we're talking with, you know, a, a big massive firm and those are the kinds of firms that we want to own. Right. So, yeah. And is that, I mean, is that the philosophy, say, on the hedge fund side, uh, you're tending to allocate to larger, more established managers as opposed to going out for kind of smaller niche or emerging managers? It varies, actually. Um, so, you know, some of the, the multi-strategy managers um, are, are very large and very well-known. And then we have another multi-strategy manager that actually is is quite small and will probably always stay quite small. And we delighted they will, and hope that they will actually stay quite small. Um and then, you know, some of our CTAs, we have very well-known firms, and then we have um, ones that are also well-known, but because of, because of, for example, very short-term in nature, they have, you know, more limited capacity. Um, I mean, in general, we haven't done a ton in, like, really, truly emerging manager. But, for example, the hedge fund that we just invested with where we got the revenue share, that was very much of an emerging manager. We did it because we liked them. We liked the strategy, and, and obviously, we were, you know, able to get the revenue share with them, and so that made a difference. And then in the private space, 
we've definitely worked with much smaller fund managers, like, I mean, small fund sizes, that is. In some cases, we're even to willing to be, to commit to fund one. So we're the people like, you know, literally this is the very first fund for this organization. So we are willing to do that at times. Um, and, you know, I think as, as Andy mentioned, you know, we quite like being in smaller funds where they're, they're less trafficked, um, if you will. And also we can be a meaningful partner and can then negotiate some interesting economics for, for the plans. Interesting. And just shifting gears again a little bit, obviously, you're, you're both CIOs of, of plans. And, you know, one of, one of the things that we've been talking to the allocators that, that have come on the show is the kind of the, the skills of the CIO and the, the challenge of, of, of the kind of the multifaceted nature of the role in terms of managing teams, dealing with a board, uh, the investment side. From, from, from each of your own perspectives, what, what would you say is the biggest challenge as being a, a CIO of a public pension plan at the moment uh, or, and specifically in, in your roles? You know, the expected returns, um, you know, until fairly recently have been looking forward, um, you know, a tremendous amount of equity returns have been pulled forward. Um, bonds um, obviously are yielding relatively low yields, even, you know, after a little bit of a, a you know rate rise here recently. So, um, you know, looking forward, it's just hard to imagine how, uh, certainly in just public space, um, you're going to be able to achieve those expected returns uh, that are built into your your modeling, so your actuarial modeling. So, you know, that's I think is a real challenge. Uh, and um, I like Catherine handle longevity uh, piece of that assumption too. So, but um, uh, you know, so that's a challenge, and it's certainly a challenge if you're underfunded. We are lucky to be relatively well funded, so so that's that's a that's a great help. But you know, I just would it would be a real challenge if you were some of these bigger Penn State funds where the you know the sponsors taken a contribution holiday and um, you know you've been also hit with which you know is obviously going to affect your funding status and then you get hit with some of these market shocks that um, you know really put you behind the eight ball. So, and Catherine, what's your perspective? Well, so the longevity risk that he's referring to is we were at a conference about a year ago, maybe a couple of years ago, and they were basically saying that if you're 50 or less, I think it's actually three years ago, if you're if you're 50 or um, younger, you should expect to live to be 125 years old because medical advances are, are, are moving that quickly. And as a public pension official, I kind of almost fall out of my chair just with that prospect. <laughs> um, but but I would even also just step back and say, you know, I think, um, you know, we're all generalists, obviously, kind of, you know, by definition, and it's hard to be a journalist hard to be, you know, good in, in every asset class, right? So um, I think trying to be really focused, I think being really focused on, you know, as Andy mentioned, like asset allocation and portfolio construction. And, um, you know, I'd love to tell you that, that you know, that I'm, you know, looking at every exposure of every manager every month, but it's not a good, first of all, we don't always get the information. Secondly, it's not, it's not a great use of, of time. You know, if we had a whole army of people, maybe that would be a good move. But, but in general, I think really, you know, trying to, we, we actually have been trying to take less meetings during COVID. We use kind of COVID excuse to take less meetings and trying to be really much more targeted in the meetings that we accept. And I would also tell you, um, I think trying not to be too reactive to anything. I mean, as I say that, you know, we are we do try to be a little bit tactical kind of just on the on that on the edges but but trying not to be overly reactive um kind of day to day because we obviously are very long term in nature and then just trying to you know find concise amounts of information there, like there, there's such information overload you know our, both of our, we both get you know i'm sure several hundred emails a day so just trying to you know figure out you know what's critical 
what do I, what do I need to, you know, just to be more focused, I think, um, because otherwise it's just, you know, you can just get cut up with trying to return every email, read every email, return every phone call. And it's just, it. we, we also have a, um, a, a real secret weapon, a real asset. Um, and that is the, the longevity and stability of our boards. So I've been here since 98 off and on. And I was an analyst at first and then run, started running the employee system in 2004. Um, and, um, I've had the same board chairman here that whole time. And uh, I've had a number of the trustees on my board that have served, you know, 10, 12, 16 years, um, 20 years. We don't just lost a person that had been on the board for 30 years. And so that kind of longevity and stability is just an incredible asset because um, we've been able to develop the strategy over time. Uh, it's grown uh, to where it is now. And all a lot of the trustees um, have had a extensive and long-term exposure to not only the concepts of the strategy, but understanding when and where it won't, you know, will underperform, right? And understanding that. And so, and we don't have the turnover so that, so that when you go through those, um, those periods where, you know, understandably the strategy is going to, you know, fall behind. So you get into a, you know, 2017 environment, right, where, you know, equities just took off and everybody sort of understands that. And and there's only a couple of new folks that we have to sort of bring along in terms of educating them on, you know, the strategy because it's, I mean, it, it's basic, it's, it's pretty simple, but, um, you know, the implementation of it can certainly look very complex and very sophisticated. So, um, you know, but we both have had that. Um, and so we have a lot of, you know, built in capital with those boards and, um, and we're not constantly having to defend the strategy. So when you, you hear about the turnover, not only at the board level, but the CIO level, um, you know, and that's one of the things that makes it attractive for us to be here. I mean, I, you know, I've been here a long time and, um, it's because I have tremendous flexibility to, to do a lot of really cool things with a board that that you know has a lot of confidence in in me and us, and so that's a tremendous um, you know and it, it, over the long term, being consistent about your strategy and not consistently sort of changing it with you know a new board that has a certain agenda or you know you know sort of forcing turnover at the CIO level, um, and then you get somebody that that else that comes in and doesn't quite see things, you know, and they start to try and implement. And, and probably that is in response to some sort of level of underperformance that is probably going to change in the near future. So, um, so that's been a, just a tremendous asset for us. So. so, so having that consistency has been probably a, an important part of your return. So, and you, you probably wouldn't have that leeway if you were right. parachuted into a different organization from day one, you'd have to build up that capital over time. Interesting. Great. Well, we've gone for over an hour. Maybe just to wrap up, we, we typically ask our guests, you know, any advice they would have for people, you know, who want to enhance their skills and in asset allocation, manager selection, etc. And, and, and move, you know, in their careers to, to a CIO type role. Any any kind of recommendations, suggestions on things to do, things to, to read, paths to take, um, Andy? Um, yeah, I mean, I guess the biggest thing that I've learned in this is because when I first came along, um, you know, I was all interested in sort of just the stock stories, you know, and having an equity manager in and talking about all of, you know, the, the companies that are investing in and what the catalysts were and uh, those kinds of things. And at the end of the day, to be honest, that's a lot of noise <laughs> that can consume a lot of time. And it was really the, a conversation that I had with Bob Prince of Bridgewater about sort of this risk parity construct, right? This all weather construct. 
and how you earn risk premium over time in different asset classes. And the fact that over time, most asset classes should pay you the same level of return for risk. Um, because if there was one asset class that just provided superior risk-adjusted returns, everyone would just do that, right? But that's what happens is every piles into it if they've if that's been the case, and then you know that that risk premium declines over time. And so there's this natural arbitrage that takes place. Um, and so just this concept of risk contribution, you, you if you want diversification, you have to have the risk contribution of the diversifying assets in size. And that's just, it's just a basic, it's just basic math. There's nothing, you know, black box about it. It's just the way the math works. And, um, and so that's really the key is if you think something is diversifying, then own it and own it in size. Um, and assuming it has a positive risk premium and you've got those offsetting risks, you're collecting the average risk premium between the two. And, you know, that's, and you're collecting it in a more efficient fashion. And that's, you know, that's the key to success and stick with it. So. Very good. Catherine, any thoughts uh, from your side? If you were doing it all again, what would you do? Do, do anything differently in terms of, you know, the path uh, to, to a CIO role? Um, I don't think so. But but my, you know, my path may be unusual, but my background was very much alternatives heavy before here. Yeah. And I spent over a decade um, at a fund of hedge fund. So, you might, one might say very specific, just hedge funds, but I, fortunately there I was a generalist, and so I looked at every possible hedge fund manager from from macro and commodities and vol and distressed and equity long short and like literally you know event driven like everything under the sun. And so when I was interviewing here. I could just talk about not just all the hedge funds that I'd hired, but how I'd hired managers from like quite literally every you know, possible underlying asset class and every derivative of all of those asset classes as well. Um, and so that gave me a really broad-based familiarity, if you will, with, you know, all different types of, of strategies and managers. And um, so that was helpful experience. Um, so get, get be as broad as possible uh, is, is, is good training, I guess, yeah? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Great stuff. Well, listen, thanks very much, uh, Catherine and Andy. Thanks to you both for, for coming on. It's been very enlightening. I think it's a very interesting um, asset allocation process you run. I think uh, anybody listening today would have learned a lot. So thank you very much uh, for coming on to speak to us. And uh, with that, I'll pass it back to Niels. Thank you so much, Alan, Catherine and Andrew, for a very insightful conversation on the topic of portfolio construction. For me, what stood out was the approach that Catherine and Andrew have adopted, where they focus on allocating risk rather than capital, and where they try to be as capital efficient as possible by making use of high vol strategies. Of course, I love their praise of the attributes that trend followers can bring to a portfolio, but I'm not so sure I agree with them when they say that these strategies can be commoditized and replicated cheaply, even if some managers will make these claims. I also found the section on manager selection super interesting and very refreshing to hear how they like to find small privately owned managers with lots of skin in the game. Make sure you go and follow Catherine and Andrew's work because as you can tell from today's conversation, it is so important that you understand how to allocate capital well in an uncertain world and we really look forward to sharing many more of these insights as our series continue. From Alan and me, Thank you so much for listening and we look forward to being back with you on the next episode. And in the meantime, take care of yourself and take care of each other. 
Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.